room to have liquid so-called vegetable oils increased, and then uh, they invented the thing called Crisco as hydrogenated fats and trans fats and vegetable oils increased. The level of diabetes and heart disease and obesity also increased. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 31. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, everybody. Dan Reed here, Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the show. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. A few notes. First, head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and you'll find my social media buttons. You can follow me on Facebook in the Eating Liberty group. Uh, Also, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, Also, on the podcasts page, you'll find buttons for support for the show. Uh, you can support me through Patreon, where I have various support levels for cool items. Uh, also, either PayPal or Bitcoin. Uh, please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcatcher. And like the show and leave a positive review. Positive reviews help move the show up and lets more people see it. And the more people who see it are the more people who get cooking. From the show notes page from the various episodes, you can share those pages with your friends on social media. I appreciate all you've done so far and encourage you to keep sharing them so your friends can listen also. You might remember the movie The Princess Bride, when Inigo reminds himself of Vizzini's words, when things go bad, go back to the beginning. History is the beginning. The instructors at Tom Woods Liberty Classroom will take you back to the beginning, back to when those important events happened with primary sources where available and sound analysis. Bite back against the hyperbole and partisan interpretations and get the history and economics you were denied at public school. Click over to Liberty Classroom with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback, and listen to lectures on your commute or at the gym or in the kitchen. Culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. Today I'm replaying my appearance on Luke Tatum's Culture of Peace podcast. Luke was a guest on this show a few episodes ago, and we talked about how to anarchy. I came on Luke's show to discuss the food pyramid and the my plate idea and what is wrong with it, what can a central planner actually hope to accomplish with food, and what can you, the consumer, do. Luke operates LukeTatum.com, and there you'll find his podcast, The Culture of Peace. Luke's other contact information will be on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 31. Now, here's the episode. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your pun. 
<laughs> well, I appreciate you being on the show more than the pun. So, uh, Dan, the focus for today is going to be the government's role in dictating to us citizens what is or is not healthy according to their standards. I really can't wait to get to that because I personally still have a lot to learn on that subject. But before we do, I want to learn more about you. So here's a chance to just kind of introduce yourself to the audience. Um, tell us, you know, about your love of cooking, your love for libertarianism, and what led you to create your culinary libertarian site. You said this is just a half an hour show, right? It sure is. So give us the, you know, somewhat <laughs> short version. Um, well, I've been... When I was in high school, I, I I thought cooking was going to be an easy job. So I thought, well, this is kind of exciting and everyone likes to eat. So I got the everyone likes to eat part right. The easy part, not so much. <laughs> it turns out um, cooking professionally is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do, um, which is fine if that's what you like. And it turns out that I sort of cottoned to that kind of thing in the first place. So it worked out okay. Um, this is this is a, a strange thing for a cook to say, but one of the things I find most rewarding about the cooking experience is sort of chasing that culinary unicorn of the perfect dish or the perfect sauce or the perfect soup. And there's it's it's of course doesn't exist, but it's always that push to perfection to make. In, in the cook's opinion, that one thing a little bit better. And so I've just been doing that and doing that and doing that and, and decided that cooking wasn't enough. So I need to do baking and pastry too. <laughs> As if I was, you know, just not busy enough. Um, so the, the cooking part was just, it's kind of become an identity. And for a long time it was, uh, 80 or so hours a week in the kitchen. It's hard to be anything else. Um, so the liberty part that sort of came, I was when you stop spending eight hours a week in the kitchen, you've got to do something else with your time. And the other thing I did with my time was I was listening to like so many others, right wing talk radio and, um, you know, the blowhard and then the guys like Shannon Hannity and Levin, I guess he's another blowhard. Um, they started to just not satisfy. There seemed to be something missing in all of their spiels. So I found I found Beck and bridged the app a little bit, but still not quite. Um, and I, I've truly tried to figure out what was the moment that I found Tom Woods, and I cannot find it. I have no idea what the thing was that led me there, but I found his show, started listening, and went to all the, went from the very beginning with, um, oh, the Tenth Amendment guy, I forgot his name, Mike, and then, you know, Jethro Tull and blah, 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 and it made more sense. Um, so I just kind of got into that and realized that nobody knows better for me than I do about what's good for me and what my choices really should be. And I should have the chance to decide whether or not I want that thing and I don't need the government deciding for me. Well, there you go. That's that's a perfect explanation for it. And, you know, I came from, I guess, the left. I didn't really consider myself 
too much on the left, uh, although I was involved with the Democratic Party in my little hometown where I grew up. But uh, it, it's interesting how, you know, Tom Woods has been like the path for a lot of people. First, it was Ron Paul for me. But then Tom Woods, of course, I don't know how you avoid that guy at this point. If you start looking into the Mises Institute or libertarianism in general, he's going to come up. And then there you go. You're you're pretty much down the rabbit hole at that point. So cool. Well, thanks for sharing that story. Let's talk about the focus for the show, though. So I, I don't want to miss the opportunity for you to give all the detail that you know here. So mm. the, um, the food pyramid is really where I'd like to start. I'm not sure how prevalent it is today compared to when I was growing up, but for many years and definitely, again, during my own upbringing, it was a big deal. You know, it's like food packaging has this visual dietary guide just emblazoned on the side of it. And it's just there. You don't think about where did it come from. But of course, now being a libertarian, being highly critical of all of these things, now I think about that. So what is the food pyramid and where did it come from? Well, the food pyramid that you and I remember came, actually was introduced in 1992. It has changed into the myplate.gov program uh, the the pyramid you know it's uh, the, the pyramid was intended i'm pretty sure to be an easy visual guide to, you know, for diet and menu planning they changed it in 2005 to something that to look at it, it looks even more confusing than the food pyramid. Uh, and then the my plate thing, um, this is where I guess the cynic of in me comes out. Uh, it is a visual image of, say, like a cafeteria plate, which has those little sections. Uh, so fruits, grains, proteins, and vegetables. And they're different colors and different sizes. And of course, the vegetables is the big one. Uh, and then off to the side is dairy. So this is like, you know, just you have a drink of milk, which conspicuously absent from the my plate image is meat. They have protein, but they, I think that they would probably say they mean vegetable protein, but you know, meat's there, but no fat. Fat is not included at all. I misspoke myself. Um, the the push to get government involved in food really, I think, started about 1955 after President Eisenhower's heart attack. So the government got into this massive do-something mode. And, of course, as soon as government gets into the do-something mode, oh, my gosh, nothing good happens. Um, so with the awareness that you had, that your diet has some impact in your health, and this was not a new idea, uh, back in the, like, 1916 to 1930s, there was a food for young children and how to select food. So there were some, there was literature there about how to, or what to eat to be healthy, but the... The president having a heart attack was a really big deal. Um, so in con sort of at the same time, uh, a fellow named Ansel Keys, uh, he's the one that is sort of either credited or besmirched for 
having the idea that diet can control your health. And he and did something called the Seven Seven Nation Study, did lots and lots of research, uh, and went to um, Greece. I think it went to Crete or Greece, and 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 to study what do these seemingly healthiest people eat, and why are they so healthy? Now, uh, Nina Teicholz has written extensively in her book The Big Fat Lie about the. <sighs> My words, not hers, although she might agree, faulty science behind Keyes' research. Um, the easy thing for the show is to know that Keyes went to post-World War II Crete, a Catholic, an Eastern, you know, Orthodox Catholic nation during Lent. Oh. And seemed to be surprised that the night eating meat. Well, duh. <laughs> After the war, no one has any money. It's let they wouldn't eat meat if they had the money. So it's to to present this as this is why they're healthy and not take into account these two fairly important factors seems at least to be mildly disingenuous. Um, and so there's there's an entire almost career building opportunity for those who've taken it to dismantle Keyes' research. And, and Nina does a pretty good job of that. Um, what came from and continues to be produced from Keyes research is meat and meat fat is bad. Vegetables and fruits are good. Um, grains are even better. And as, as technology came along and the push toward changing our diet went from meats to liquid fats, liquid, let's clarify, liquid at room temperature fats, things like, uh, well, canola oil is fairly new, but peanut oil and uh, corn oil and soybean oil, those things were presented as the panacea for health and we've now figured out that that's not even close to true um those liquid at room temperature so-called vegetable oils aren't very healthy after all um olive oil is better because olives are a fruit avocado oil is better because avocados are fruit um I don't know very much about this phrase. High oleic kinds of canola oil are available, which are a little bit better. But there's the 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 thing itself, the canola oil or the soybean oil or even the corn oil presents a bit of a problem. Well, it, to me, anyway, the the in in the process of getting the oil out of the canola seeds. Uh, they use a chemical called hexane, and it's just it's it, it, people can look it up and find out what it is because it's too long to go into. Um, but there's there comes a point when the fix liquid room temperature vegetable oil is worse than the disease, when actually the disease isn't a problem at all. So what we've discovered, not we, because I'm not the scientist. What scientists have discovered in doing this research is the saturated fats don't make you fat. It's all the other stuff, which if you look at the bottom of the pyramid or now on the my place, so the bottom of the pyramid, 
that you and I had as kids, the base of the pyramid is all grain. Right. Well, so there's there's lots of things that are correlation. And of course, correlation is not causation, but when you get enough <laughs> enough um, enough connections, one has to at least look with some level of objective criticalness to say maybe this is wrong. Uh, as the so the correlation is as the introduction of room to have liquid so-called vegetable oils increased and then uh, they invented the thing called crisco as hydrogenated fats and trans fats and vegetable oils increased the level of diabetes and heart disease and obesity also increased again not causation but strong strong correlation and then we get into eating more and more and more grains, and then they're processed in some sort of weird way. And sometimes I think the processed stuff in the package, you're probably better off eating the plastic than the stuff inside because it's been so far removed from what the thing was as to bear no resemblance to anything found in nature. So making these highly processed foods the base for our diet has, I think, been a really, really bad idea, and still we're steered in that direction. So let me ask you this, then. I, like, for example, the food pyramid, yes, it's everywhere, or it was everywhere as we were growing up, and yes, you can look at that and say, well, the government has my best, uh, best, you know, um, it, it wants the best for me, and so obviously I should take their advice, and I should eat lots of grains, but you could also not do that. You could just pioneer off in your own direction, do your own thing, eat whatever you want, and you might do better, but is there certain things that are, let's say, dictated by government nutrition standards, like our school lunches or something like that? Is that directly controlled or determined by these nutritional guidelines? Like, what's the extent of the problem, I guess, is my real question. It's, it's pervasive. Schools, hospitals, nursing homes, the military, all of these things are being, all, all of the menu choices. So when I send my, <laughs> so when I send my kid to school, my kids go to public school and here in Oregon, and probably everywhere. I don't remember these things happening in Florida or in New Jersey. Uh, maybe they do now. I don't know. So my kid can go to school and get breakfast provided by, well, the school provides it, but somebody else paid for it. Um, generally, it's good. <laughs> it's just a big plate of sugar. So it's an, an apple. So before we start maligning sugar too much, one of the basic – so it's, it's just too many thoughts at once. If we throw away the food pyramid and throw away just the whole idea of some central planner having the right idea for 300 million people, which, of course, is just ludicrous on its face, and say, what would be the best things for me to eat? The best things for anybody to eat in general would be – the food as close to how it was originally produced. So an apple or a pear is going to be superior to applesauce or apple juice. 
the further down the line you get, the more processing that went into that food, the less food there is left to consume. So apple juice is just mainlining sugar. Applesauce isn't too far away from that. At least with eating the apple, you're getting something from the apple, something from the pear. Um, the, the keto folks, they have a list of fruits that are preferred and fruits that are not preferred, but they have a very specific issue they're attending to, which is eliminating carbs. Uh, and that's, that's fine. But most of us, I think probably are just looking to how can we have, how can we eat better without going through a lot of regimen? Yes. So get, get the food as close to the thing as possible. So when my kid goes to school and gets an orange or an apple or a pear, that part's fine. It's the, it's the so-called snack bar, which is if you read the ingredient list, you can't pronounce or pick or grow most of those things. Right. And, and then you go and read it and it's got 19 different kinds of sugar. Okay. Well, stop. Why? <laughs> so, you know, you get, you get bread and an apple in the snack bar or somebody. It's just, it's a whole plate of sugar. It's just complete sugar and sugar, it turns out. And this is sort of outside, but still included in the food pyramid. Sugar is really kind of the big bad guy. Now it's become popular to jump all over sugar, but even 20 years ago, the Brennans came out with the book Sugar Busters and they took it to an extreme to say, don't even eat carrots because carrots are sugar. Well, Okay, carrots are sweet because they're sugar, but if you eat the whole carrot, you're getting something more than just plain sugar um, and sweet potatoes. So there's there's a lot of nuance, and there becomes a – I think truly there is a religiosity toward nutrition, and the government certainly has their side of it. Um, Then the the vegan folks have their side. The vegetarians have their side. Uh, everybody has a real strong opinion about it, and it to to know what is good food can become really really difficult and confusing. When really it should be the easiest thing there is to know what's a good food to eat, and everybody has these strong opinions about it. And then you know, so we're having to talk about what's good food. Well. We have this pyramid, we have this my plate design, which is, I think, giving us misinformation and the preponderance of grains and sugars and stuff that are at my elementary school for my children, are in hospitals, are in nursing homes, uh, to the military, and also used for influencing the opinions and information from doctors who aren't generally trained in nutrition. Now, that's kind of like, what the heck are you talking about? Our doctors are trained for doctor things, and food and nutrition is a completely separate discipline. So I think for the most part, now this is a, I hate glaring generalities, but I'm going to make one. I think most MDs are not as nutritionally informed as they could be, but that's it's a whole other beast. I think some of them may make the choice to learn that, but in general, I think medical schools avoid serious in-depth nutrition, saving that for the specialty of the nutritionist. 
I think I would agree with that. And I have to tell you a story, actually. Um, whenever my son was born, we were in the hospital, and there was some concern due to some equipment that was not working well that he might have uh, sleep apnea. So we were there for, you know, a while. And I have to tell you, it's like starving to death because we were eating um, a pretty high-fat, probably medium-protein diet before going to the hospital and you know there was a snowstorm we were stuck there so we were pretty much just living off of the food that they were bringing us and i mean it's nothing it's like you say it's a lot of sugar and then you know here's some crackers here's some applesauce things like that and it's just our entire dietary paradigm was like crushed and thrown away while we were there and it was tough it was some tough stuff i was making a lot of trips to the um Vending machine. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so, you know, and that was, gosh, that's eight years ago or so, but um, crazy, crazy times. So let's talk about then. So, I mean, we've established there's problems with the food pyramid. I'd say it sounds like you disagree with that model, but what do you propose in its stead? I mean, do you think we're in a good spot now where you have all of these different uh, hardcore groups of people like the keto people and the vegans and the vegetarians and the carnivore diet people. And we should just kind of throw people out there and let them go pick what sounds good and try it. Or do you think there is some role for a centralized state? I mean, what's your, what's your take on it? I don't see a useful role for a central planner in any one person's diet. Uh, the suggestion that a one-size-fits-all diet is appropriate is, again, if you just think about it, it's just, just ridiculous. Um, Michael Pollan, who is very powerful in the food movement, uh, his uh, the Omnivore's Dilemma is one of his early books and uh, a couple of other ones. And his he has come out with a, a brilliant idea uh, in a very short couple of sentences for a sound eating plan, which is eat anything you want, cook it yourself. And that's, uh, that's great, but... So let's say we're going to we'll buy the flour because milling your own flour is possible. But if you don't have access to the grain, then that's just kind of silly. So you're not going to make your you're not going to mill your own flour. That would everyone can't do that. But everyone can go to the store and buy a bag of bread flour. Sure. Everyone can go to the store and buy yeast, or you can make your own yeast from sourdough starter and make your own bread. You don't have to grow your own rice. You don't have to grow your own wheat. You have to grow all your own vegetables. If you can, that's great. But as long as you're avoiding the pre-made packets of food, you want cookies? Make them. That changes your willingness to make cake and cookie and pie every single day. You're not going to you just you, – you, you reduce – I. Um, um, you know, unless you're that strange person who bakes all the time, you you end up with a fairly balanced diet just because some of those things are more time inclusive than other things. 
Uh, making bread is fairly easy to do. It doesn't require a lot of time from the person, although it does require a fair amount of time off of the clock. So you can mix the dough, leave it for 40 minutes to do the first ferment, come back, move it around a little bit, leave it for 40 more minutes, come back, shape it, leave it for another hour or so. So it doesn't require a lot of time. You can make fresh bread pretty easily. Um, if you want to get into sourdough breads, that's another story. But if we're talking about just eating anything you want to, as long as you cook it yourself, then we've taken the central planner out of it. The person who has a, an allergy to a thing is going to eliminate the allergy to the thing. That thing's gone. No worries. Right. Um, if somebody, if your preference is to eat lean protein, then eat lean protein. Nobody really, I mean, this is, the central planner isn't necessary because uh, adults can make sound decisions about the things they want to eat. And by the way, you can't make Cheetos at home. <laughs> it's just not possible. <laughs> you need thousands and thousands of dollars worth of equipment that's specialized that does one thing. And no one's going to do that. You can't even make cold cereal at home unless you make granola. And I've looked into it. So I know this is true. <laughs> so, you know, I, th I think he's onto a really good idea. And I think that the good idea of eating what you want to by cooking it yourself can replace this, this top down centrist plan of dictating for everybody what's right. And I also think that you should eliminate counting calories because all calories aren't the same. You know, between fats and carbohydrates, you get a wide range and I'm, I brought it up and I'm going, I, I think it's nine gram, nine calories per gram for fats and four calories per gram for carbs or something like that, which is why you eat so many more carbs to feel full and you're getting, you're getting fewer calories per gram, but you're eating a lot more. Right. Okay. Whereas if you eat, so if you don't have the ability to grind your own hamburger, by 80-20 hamburger, that 20% fat, some of it's going to come out when you grill or you cook the burger. That's what happens. But the rest of that fat is going to help fill you up, and it takes longer for your digestion to eliminate that that burger or the cheeseburger, or you know, so you feel fuller longer. Uh, it is also true that whole grains will stay with you a little bit longer. Uh, I I actually am a big big fan of the. Uh, it's a popular Eastern European uh, grain called kasha, which I think is fantastic. I, I've, I've met nearly nobody who likes it as much as I do, but um, man, is it good. But anyway, just break away from the government tit of telling you how to eat and what to eat and make your own food. Well, that's uh, that's a good prescription there. I, I like that. And, of course, I feel like I'm doing pretty well with my own personal health. And, you know, my family is. And we do a lot of that. Not every single meal. And I think it's important to have, you know, a cheat day here and there and, you know, go out to eat, have a nice dinner somewhere or whatever. But if your baseline is healthy, then you can afford to do those things. I, I you know, you made a good point. And. Having yeah, having a mindset that you 
can allow yourself uh, a cheat day, and, and maybe people find the word cheat day too aversive, but the, the, the idea of giving yourself permission to not have to be completely rigorous to this, this eating thing, because if you are too hard on yourself, then you eliminate some of the fun things. So you can't have you know, you can't have a piece of birthday cake for your kid's party or can't have a bowl of ice cream. And by the way, ice cream, even though it has sugar, has got lots of fat, <laughs> we've already figured out that fat's good fat. And besides, it's ice cream. I mean, come on. It's ice cream. So ha- having a little latitude, and it's okay if you didn't make the ice cream, uh, having some latitude to enjoy a meal as opposed to this is just something I must do for health. Well, we're talking about the the food for the physical health and it's easy to overlook the emotional well-being and if we're eating a pile of sawdusty food drenched in butter because this is what's healthy well if you aren't emotionally satisfied with the meal then i would question it's total healthfulness i think that yes we i I think this is a point i think lots of people sort of make between well i don't want to lie but the american diet versus the european diet in general the europeans have said they live to eat and americans eat to live and while that's obviously not true all the time the sentiment is enjoy the food that you have if it's this is food it can taste good and you can feel pleasure in eating good food it doesn't have to be this um i don't want to it doesn't have to be this religious thing where you have to have guilt over enjoying your food and you need to go see the priest because you have to have confession pardon me father if i have sinned i had steak for dinner shut up enjoy the food yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly because um, I love I, to eat, man. I really do. And I hope that it, that is something that stays with me. I don't want to lose that ever. But, um, man, so that was good. That was a good exploration of the topic. And, of course, we could do a whole episode on the emotional aspects of eating and, like, the emotional aspects of health. I think that's a whole 30-minute or even hour. Uh, it probably is. Yeah. So I like it. I like your solution. And uh, Dan, thanks so much for being on to talk about all this. Why don't you, um, of course, I I plugged Culinary Libertarian at the beginning, but uh, give us all the links, give us all the the ways to keep up with you, and uh, we'll we'll wrap it there. Well, conveniently, everything is there. So the uh, I have a, a podcast, the Culinary Libertarian podcast, and the show notes pages are all that culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts uh, and there you can find all of the buttons for my <laughs> seemingly ever never-ending variety of social media uh, locations uh, I think the, the one I use most is uh, the Culinary Libertarian uh, Facebook page which is facebook.com uh, food and Rothbard which is a kind of an inside Tip of the hand. Uh, but the culinarylibertarian.com website, pretty much the place to find all of my stuff. 
Okay, perfect. So I will definitely link to that. I will link to the books that you mentioned as well. And uh, of course, if you want to just have one convenient place to find all of that stuff, just go to luketatum.com slash 25. Dan, thanks so much. My pleasure, Luke. Thank you very much. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put links on the show notes page for Nina's book as well as for Gary Taub's book, The Case Against Sugar, since sugar is the big bad guy. And both books are important works that tell us what we eat and how we eat affects our health. With the make-it-yourself idea still fresh, pun intended, you can pick up my Muffins e-cookbook on the podcasts page. Just follow the link. Leave your email address and the link will be sent to you to download the book. Have a great week and I'll see you soon.